Welcome to another week of this week in government enforcement. Jerome Thomas and Jeff Martino coming to you from undisclosed locations. We've got a special guest today, Ashley Eikhoff, a senior associate in our litigation, specifically antitrust enforcement group. <laughs> um, Ashley and Jeff are going to talk uh, a little today about recent developments in, in the antitrust, specifically the criminal antitrust enforcement space um, with, a, with a bent on one of the topics. I keep getting emails on this all the time from the various legal service providers, antitrust enforcement in the labor market space. It's, it's, it's a hot area. It's one where a lot of folks are talking about it. And so it just makes sense that Jeff and Ashley kind of bring us current on what's going on. But before we get to that, I wanted to take a couple minutes and talk about um, things that um, we heard and saw um, at last week's uh, SEC Speaks, kind of the conference of securities, in particular SEC enforcement practitioners. So I was out there last week for what we call Speaks. Um, our firm threw a reception for the SEC Historical Society, which is a bunch of SEC former, uh, you, know, uh, you know, lawyers and employees who really dig the history of the agency. And the history of the agency is cool. Um, but then, like, what was really neat is when we saw or we heard Chair, uh, uh, Chair Gensler's comments that next day. Um, and interesting for a couple of reasons. One, he almost exclusively focused on crypto, which was interesting given that there's a lot more going on at the SEC than crypto. Um, but, but I think crypto was the proxy for the message he was sending. Um, and the other cool element, which ties into the history, is he hearkened back to the first SEC chair, Chair Kennedy, way, way back when, the first chair of the SEC. And um, he was talking about the history of the SEC. And he said that, um, that um, uh, Joe Kennedy once said, no honest business need fear the SEC. And, um, you know, I, it was kind of a, a throwaway reference, but I do think if I can get inside and play Gary Gensler for two seconds, I think what he was doing, and it's something I was talking about the folks on um, Wednesday night at the uh, reception we had, and frankly, sneak peek, it's something we're going to be talking about at our panel at the Ray Garrett Conference at Northwestern's Law School Conference. Ray Garrett um, Conference is the seminal sort of Midwestern Securities Law Conference. It's a great, it's a great program, but we're going to be talking about this as well, which is how the SEC and its mission in protecting the securities markets and investors fits into the current issues that is that are facing, if you will, the investing markets, whether it's crypto, whether it's ESG, and even cybersecurity, right? The SEC is hot on both the enforcement and the, the regulation side in all three areas. But 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 all three of those are sort of new themes. Um, they are they're, they're they're not something frankly that we would have thought about even 15, 20 years ago, um, crypto probably in the last five years as being anything that the SEC would necessarily really be focused on. But like Dylan said, the times are changing. So does the business world. So do the securities markets. And I think what Gary Gensler was saying is they like, look, and he actually did say this, as did the director of enforcement, um, Gabriel Gawal. He said, look, um, we don't care what you call it. 
right? You can you can call a token the moon. That's fine, right? You can say it's decentralized. You can say it's the latest, greatest in technology and that its very essence is decentralized, which means it shouldn't have central regulation, certainly central regulation of a regulator without congressional approval. Um, they're really saying, if you kind of parse through all their comments, we, we hear it all, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us what you call it and what your objections are and what your white papers say a particular token is or isn't. We're going to run, and we've talked about this before, guys, the Howey test. Is it an investment of money into a common enterprise by the investors where there's an expectation of profit derived primarily through the efforts of others? Again, I'm sort of simplifying the Howey test a little bit, but, but not much. But what they're saying, and we talked about this um, last time on the Sweden government enforcement with the, the insider trading case involving the, 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 the CoinDesk employees. Um, if it fits that, we're going to call it a security. And therefore, it needs to be registered as security. And any fraud, any connection with that is going to be securities fraud. And oh, by the way, um, these platforms, again, I talked about my Coinbase app, which I, I do trade crypto. Um, you need to start thinking about whether you need to register as a, a, a securities platform. This drumbeat is being brought not only through public pronouncements, but also um, through enforcement actions. Uh, and again, I, I don't think it's necessarily a round peg and a round hole. I've likened this before. The SEC trying to regulate cryptocurrency is like trying to shove a marshmallow through a keyhole. It just it, it it's not clean and it doesn't work, right? Like you you can use crypto in many cases to go out and buy things, right? Um, uh, you know, on Overstock and other uh, other payment services have ability to buy things through crypto. Well. I can't do that with my securities account. I can't take the stocks on my E-Trade account and then go and take my phone and go buy groceries or go buy, you know, whatever I want to do. Okay, so so there is, there's not a nice, neat sort of parallel to what we have in the securities markets. But what both uh, Grewal and Gensler are saying is like, look, guys, um, we're not going to look to make something a security that isn't a security but if something is a security and that's that's going to be the fight right that's going to be the fight in the insider trading case that's going to be the fight in all in all crypto cases is it a security but they're saying if it's a security and and my, my two cents is it's very hard to get something off the ground in an initial coin offering without it at least flying close to the security sun if you will right that icarus to the sun so you you know th that's where you you run into issues from the security standpoint right away this thing has to get off the ground somewhere people have to invest money to in, to create the blockchain frankly to, to promote the blockchain and somebody's got to do that promoting and oftentimes it's the sponsors or the people who created the blockchain and the underlying um it the underlying token so you run really close to all of the elements of the Howey test. So again, um, uh, I'm an SEC practitioner. I see where the SEC is coming from. I also see where the, the business side is coming from because there isn't a lot of clarity out there. And frankly, things can morph from being a security to not being a security. And the SEC has acknowledged as much. So there's a lot of vagaries out there. But what the SEC was very clear in saying last week is you, you, can, you, you can yell, you can scream and jump all you want. You're going to do it till you exhaust yourself. All we're going to do is look at it in the four corners, analyze it, no matter how. So I think 
if you're looking at it, your best bet is to approach the law and not the, the theory or the white paper, you know, points with the SEC, because they are always going to revert back to the law. They don't care if it's decentralized. What they're going to care about is does it fit within the, the, the confines of the Howey test? So um, I wanted to bring you guys up to speed. Oh, but, but real quickly, before I hand it over to you guys, um, I think that applies also with cyber and with ESG. What, what they are really saying here is, look, we, if this is within our jurisdiction, we are going to rise to the level of bringing it within what is required under the federal securities laws to provide investors complete and truthful, accurate uh, information in all material respects. So whether that's ESG disclosures, whether those are cyber disclosures, um, those are not traditional bread and butter SEC issues. But the SEC is trying to be the preeminent, if not one of the preeminent corporate regulators in the U.S. and around the world. So they are very much taking their flag and staking it in all of these in the key areas. The question is always going to be, well, what is the jurisdictional angle from the security standpoint? They acknowledge that, but they're also saying we're not walking away and we're not just going to stop doing something because people in the press or people in the business side don't like it. And they've said as much in their comments last week. So Jeff and Ashley, over to you. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks, Jerome. Yeah, let me uh, do further introduction to, to Ashley, who's going to bring us up to speed on the latest in labor market enforcement by the, by the division. Ashley's a, a former DOJ alum in the antitrust division. She's well aware of the latest developments that she's been got the, got the forefront of defending companies, counseling companies on these issues and helping them walk, walk through, um, in particular, these these cases that, that DOJ has brought, all stemming from about a little over a year ago, the executive order that Biden put out um, in, in real focus on antitrust enforcement and in particular labor markets. And he's called upon DOJ and the FTC to really put their stamp, but not, not only in enforcement, but also explaining what they're doing. And what we've seen is in the cases that DOJ has brought criminally, um, some of these issues really being teased out by, by DOJ as well as Defense Counsel. And uh, Ashley, why don't you, you know, introduce and provide some context into some, two recent cases that are really um, could be defining for DOJ, but also could be defining for, for um, the defense community as well. Thanks, Jeff. So the first is uh, a case out of Las Vegas. And back in 2021, the DOJ charged VDA with wage fixing. And most recently, on September 1st, the defendant, VDA, filed a notice of intent to plead guilty without a plea agreement, meaning that they pleaded open to the indictment. This is incredibly rare and almost always with corporate um, defendants, there's a plea agreement. The strategy behind this is typically that they think that the deal that they will get from the judge would be better than what the prosecutor was willing to give them. Ashley, two seconds for the uninitiated. What is pleaded open? What does that pleading, mean? Yeah, pleading open means that there is no plea agreement that they are pleading to. So there's typically there'd be a sentencing range that the prosecutor would agree and say we're willing to recommend this to the judge this there's nothing they, in they are truly throwing themselves at the mercy of the court yes. if you will proverbially yes so um then there was a sentencing hearing 
where the judge was going to accept this guilty plea. And it blew up because defendants were unwilling to plead to interstate commerce. And I think Jeff has some theories there as to why, but essentially the judge ordered the parties to meet and confer and decide whether there did need to be a plea specifically on interstate commerce. So that is where things stand. And Jeff, did you want to give a little more color on the interstate commerce element? Yeah, yeah, I can get. I, Jeff, Jeff, go, go, and then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna jump in here because I got a question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, to to be a federal case, right? It needs to have, uh, from an antitrust perspective, interstate commerce. What was the elements that the government laid out focused on that point was that it had to have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And there's another prong to that commerce element that wasn't, I, at least it didn't seem that it was, um, that the government wasn't bringing under that theory. But the other, the other uh, prong is that goods could flow um, within interstate commerce. So if a product that was subject of a price fixing agreement went from one state to another, that would be in the flow of interstate commerce. Whereas if you're only focusing, focusing on the substantial portion of that, then you're going to be talking about the amount, the volume, how, you know, we're talking maybe dollars even. So what, what is substantial? And in this case, it's a theory on my part. We're talking, it's a very small volume case, meaning that um, we're talking about one school district, relatively um, a, a capped universe of potential nurses that would have been affected by, by the agreement that the company's pleading to. So perhaps defense counsel was quibbling with whether this was actually substantial. Um, there is an allegation in the indictment that there are federal funds involved. And so that would, uh, that would really spill over into the flow of goods, uh, interstate commerce prong. So ultimately, I think everybody's going to land on the same page here and the plea will, will proceed. But, you know, these are these are hiccups um, that certainly sophisticated defense counsel and, and the government should be working through prior to going in before. A federal that's, judge. Kind of, that's kind of my question, <laughs> right? Yeah. Where he's like, I, I, I've got another matter, not in antitrust at all, but this, it's very much sounding in what you are saying right now. But the issue is it's all being worked out in advance of us going to court right like you're not you shouldn't be arguing about this at least you would expect um in the light of day right all this stuff gets done behind closed doors and so i guess my I got one sort of assumption and then one question my assumption is that the proposed defendant right they're not a defendant yet an intent to, to file to, to plead they assumed i'm assuming that there would have to be some level of interstate commerce allegation, right? Because that is the essence of a, of a federal criminal antitrust matter, right? It has an impact um, uh, interstate commerce. So it, 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 I, on some level, it, it presumably shouldn't surprise them or their counsel that there is some anti, some interstate commerce allegation in there. A am I off on that, guys? No, 
Not, not at all. So, so then is it, is it the, now, here, now here's my question, right? So I, I actually have two questions. My second question would then be, so is it, you think that they didn't get a copy of the complaint in advance and they don't know what the allegations were and right. And so they're saying, well, you're saying it's interstate commerce plus five. And if you're asking us to plead guilty to these facts, we, we can't acknowledge it. It's interstate commerce plus five. We're just willing to, you know, agree upon interstate commerce and i'm making those the, the, those concepts up but i think that it's sort of plain english you know what i'm talking about are they arguing about because you would expect them to see the language in advance or at least have to have talked with the government about what you're alleging in advance it, it's it's strange to me yeah it's do you want <laughs> it's very strange okay based on the reporting you know, it sounds like really the hiccup was not on any of the facts and was in fact on interstate commerce. Okay. So yeah. I think we are a little bit baffled as well. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, it's it's an interesting legal point, but it's really an interesting practice point, right? Which is like the things that like, it's like batting practice type stuff, right? The things that you assume will get done in a plea, sometimes for whatever reason, they're not agreed. And it comes to this, which counsels in, you know, being very careful when uh, filing one of these notices of intent or agreeing to plead. And then frankly, just telling the government, hey guys, like give me a copy of the complaint or the indictment before, because we've seen what happens if we're not on all fours and simpatico with each other about what the facts are. Yeah. Yeah. This absolutely. is a oh, this is a huge hiccup in DOJ's eyes because this will be the first ever win in a labor market case if the plea goes forward. So I'm yeah. sure that DOJ was not expecting this to happen at the hearing. This is really interesting. Oh. I'll, I'll let you guys talk. I can keep you for thirty more minutes asking questions, <laughs> but I'm yeah. going to shut up and let you guys move on. Yeah, why don't we talk on this, right? Or no? Yeah, no, I think look, the the council had the indictment for for over a year. They know oh, what the oh, allegations okay, were. okay, okay. I'm sorry. So, so yeah, so they did have the indictment. Okay, yeah, they had the indictment for over a year. Um, and going into the hearing, I think there is just probably a lack of appreciation on which theory the government was going to hang its hat wow. on. And you know, in a plea situation, I, I think it serves both the government and the potential defendant to make sure that you get through it on the same page. And if it's going to be an issue, you know, you're going to want to make sure you highlight it to the judge, not in a colloquy, but you know, as things as the hearings start. But uh, we can we can move on because we will. Ashley and I talked before this. We could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. No. No. <laughs> The fact that they okay, had it for years is, is also really interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, move on, guys, because I, I right. keep going to this, this wormhole even more. Yeah, I do want to make one last point on that case, and that is that this is specific to the company, and we still don't know what's going to happen with the individual who was also charged and whether or not they will plead guilty or not. Yeah, right. So... Moving on, another update in the aerospace case or the Patel case. Um, in June, defendants filed motions to dismiss in that case. 
And it's similar arguments that have been made in, in many other cases. And in particular, defense counsel like to make these arguments in bid rigging cases, but that the essentially the conduct should be subject to the rule of reason rather than per se treatment. And so they're entitled to bring in evidence why their agreements, you know, should be justified under the law. Actually, two yeah. seconds, because the, the, all these theories are new to you guys are bringing antitrust really for the first time to this week in government enforcement. Rule of reason versus per se, just for everyone out there who's not an antitrust practitioner. So a per se agreement, as the name implies, means that regardless of the justification, it is illegal as a matter of law. Okay. There is no justification that you can offer. Rule of reason requires a balancing, which is, you know, uh, do the pro-competitive justifications outweigh the anti-competitive um, restraints at issue? Okay. And there's in a wage fixing or um, a no poach agreement type case, DOJ has always operated under the assumption that these agreements are per se unlawful. And defense counsel is trying to argue that they should be subject to rule of reason. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. And specifically in this case, they're arguing that the agreements are ancillary to a legitimate business collaboration, and that's the argument that they're trying to put forward. And that agreement argument does hold water in rule of reason cases, but DOJ again is saying that because the wage is being fixed. It is a price fixing case, which is always squarely fall into per se. And, and, and I'm sorry, defense counsel is saying it's rule of reason because it's why, Ashley? Because the agreement is ancillary to a legitimate business collaboration. And I can give a, a little bit yeah, yeah, more yeah. color on, on what's been alleged. And, and basically, and this is in the aerospace industry. This is actually the, all of the other indictments that DOJ's brought in labor market cases were in the healthcare industry. And here in particular, the, the companies at issue all basically work for one company um, and were operating under an umbrella of basically a prime contractor. They were the subs. And in, in, in that, what they're saying is because we are operating under this umbrella, it's, it's reasonable for us to have certain restrictions on who's going to go work where, because we're all working together. We don't compete necessarily for this layer, because if we did, we'd be taking, we'd be taking a piece of the cog away that would ultimately help the, the machine move forward. And so that's what they're saying is like, we're all together here. We're not actually competing, and these restrictions are reasonable in this context, and that's why they um, they should be you know evaluated not as a per se violation, but under the rule of reason test. And and DOJ's perspective is well, you might not compete horizontally in other aspects, but you do compete horizontally for employees. Okay. And so in this aspect of the market, you are horizontal competitors. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, oh. yeah. And where, where is this right now? What's the procedural posture? I'm sorry, Ashley. It's at the motion to dismiss stage. Okay. And the judges had the motion to dismiss since June. 
So who knows? It's Judges a, it's a stay, tuned. It's a stay <laughs> tuned. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 my brain isn't working as quickly on this one as it was the other one, but I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to hear about what is going to come of this because it, it, it seems. I mean, they, they are, they are restricting the, the, the. The mobility of the employees, is that what it is, Ashley? For to go from one sub to another sub? Yes. And if we want to go back to the VDA case, in the VDA case, they made similar arguments and the judge denied it and denied the motion to dismiss and said that it was subject to per se treatment. Where are the wages set at the at the hub level or kind of at the the myriad spokes or is it clear from the from the, the papers yeah it's it's not clear from the indictment um and so you know don't want to speculate there yeah but no no this, the I, suggestion I, 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 from counsel from defense counsel is that yes this is a there is a hub who sits at the top and it's the spokes that are basically being controlled you know and sit under the umbrella and it, the, okay, okay, the legitimate I got it. purpose of this yeah, collaboration. I got it, I got it, I get it. Um, all right, well, uh, once the facts become clear on this, I, you know, through the motion dismissed, I'd love to hear about it because now I get it. And it, it, it does make sense why they're fighting about it. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that, the outcome. Yeah, so we, we think that, um, you know, here with, with DOJ, they lost their first two trials in this sphere. There, it's being all being heavily litigated, and you know we'll we're going to stay on top of it, Jerome, and and report back if we get more particular facts on this too. We'll bring it to the light, but I'm hoping we can also talk about something besides the labor market cases. Well, so so you got to promise next time you're talking about something other than labor markets. But when you do bring these two back, Ashley's got to come back and fill us in on it. Promise, Ashley. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, anything else, guys? Nope, that's it. It's a wrap. All right. Nice job. Take care, everyone. Keep sending comments, questions, et cetera, et cetera. Gathering crowds takes us home. <laughs>